Arabic is the official language of more than 27 countries and there are more than 400 million speakers of the language worldwide. Yet in the US, for example, less than 1% of students study Arabic. Studies have shown that those who speak a second language not only earn more, but are in higher level positions than their monolingual counterparts. And there's no shortage of studies that point to the benefits of students at the K-12 level learning a new language. The National Research Council in 2007 found that children who study a foreign language show greater cognitive development in areas such as mental flexibility, creativity and higher order thinking skills. Qatar Foundation International inspires meaningful connections to the Arab world by creating a global community of diverse learners and educators, connecting them through effective and collaborative learning environments inside and outside the classroom. Qatar Foundation International builds bridges across cultures by increasing the number of K-12 students in the Americas and the United Kingdom with a good knowledge and understanding of Arabic language and culture by increasing the number and quality of Arabic programs in state and public charter schools in the United States and other countries. Qatar Foundation International supports the teaching of the Arabic language through grant giving and programming activities while increasing and professionalizing the supply of highly qualified teachers of Arabic, thus raising the visibility of a growing profession through grants, professional development and free online resources. For more information on free teaching materials and available grants, please go to qfi.org and ispeakarabic.com. everyone and welcome to this second part of the ASU GSB Summit series of 10 episodes on the EdTech podcast. This week we're talking about educating for 21st century skills. I'm in three separate conversations with Richard O'Donnell, founder and CEO of Skills Fund, Pierre Dubuc, co-founder at Open Classroom and Tom Andriola, CIO and Vice President at the University of California. We touch upon accreditation, funding, project-based learning and higher and alternative education such as boot camps along the way. And if you like what you hear, you can check out more 21st Century Skills content from the ASU GSV Summit team, including videos and podcasts on this topic in our show notes, weekly email or via the ASU GSV Summit website, asugsvsummit.com. Features include LinkedIn, Snapchat and Year Up talking about the next generation of talent and Andrew Ng from Stanford University and Coursera talking about the impact of AI. Not to be missed. This week's episode is also set up nicely by the OECD's previous announcement that the next round of PISA tests in 2018 will measure global competency and cultural awareness. Whilst researchers like Alina von Davier come up with ways to help measure these diverse skills, partnerships like that between Arizona State University and the Asia Society are working to create curriculum resources and training for teachers to deliver global competency lessons. Whilst LinkedIn CEO announced at ASU GSV Summit that they would partner with Everfy to deliver compassion curriculums to US primary schools. Ah, that's so nice. But first, before we kick off with this week's episode, here's Michael Moe with the GSV Partners perspective on 21st century skills to set us up for this week's episode. You know, throughout history, whether in pre-industrial or industrial times, great nations developed based on their access to physical resources and their ability to surmount physical barriers. You know, it was really physical assets that led to advantages and success. 
in the global-based knowledge economy we're in, it's really your brain power. It's what you know. It's intellectual capital and human capital, which drives advantages and success. Fundamental to this, you're looking at the great businesses of today. It's all about how they obtain, train, and retain talent. That's a fundamental focus that every corporation is looking at. The most valuable media company in the world, it doesn't have any of its own content. That's Facebook. You look at the, the largest lodging business in the world. It doesn't own any of its own rooms. That's Airbnb. You know, the largest transportation company in the world doesn't have any of its own cars. That's Uber. But what they do have is they have knowledge and technology that's driving their success. And so, I mean, we're really entering a new era. Um, the, the competitive advantages are driven by your creativity, your ingenuity, and the human capital that you have at your organization. And automation and technology is not a new phenomenon. This has gone on for uh, many, many years. Um, John Maynard Keynes in 1930 talked about this new technological unemployment. You know, it goes back to 200 years ago, 98% of all jobs in the United States were agriculture related. And then you had this shift of different automation technology effectively replacing those jobs. But what technology does, is it replaces jobs, but it doesn't replace work. So as sure as the sun comes up in the east, we know that automation is going to continue to take away current jobs, but a whole new series of careers and jobs will be created. So historically, it was the degree that provided the currency for people to get future opportunity. It was really that ticket to ride. And while I believe that the degree will remain an important component of representing what you know and your credentials you know, for an opportunity, it's going to be augmented by a variety of ways that people are able to represent what they know, what their knowledge is, what their skill is, what their capabilities are. And I think that's a great thing. And through big data and other ways that people are going to be able to create their own knowledge portfolios and knowledge maps, that's going to be really the way that this exchange between your ability and what the opportunities are is going to be developed. And so we think that's you know that's wildly exciting, um, and it also creates challenges. And I think the the companies that find ways to facilitate this and the people that adapt to this are the ones that are going to have the greatest success. When you look at the traditional model of higher education, it's basically give us your money, we'll give you a degree, and that turns into a, a decent job. What's happened increasingly is the, the cost of university has gone up over three times inflation for the past 40 years. And um, that worked okay when effectively if you graduate from college, you had a, a much better chance of getting a high-paying job. That relationship has is, is changed pretty dramatically, you know, coupled with the fact that now students in the United States um, have taken on more debt, you know, $1.2 trillion, which is larger than the credit card industry. And so this relationship needs to, to change. And I think you're seeing companies like Coursera, which uh, coupled with the, the previous point about it's what you know, not where you go. It's knowledge, not college, that is critical for what creates opportunity. You know, Coursera is a leading MOOC with 27 million students, is able to basically reach people to provide them high-quality courses at little or no cost. 
and that and, and being able to demonstrate that you um, you know complete a course, gain knowledge, that's translating into opportunity. That's wildly disruptive to the traditional system, and we think again, good for society, you know, good for the people that participate in. Thanks, Michael. Okay, here we go, episode 78, and let us know what you think via Twitter at Podcast EdTech or at ASU GSV Summit. Have a great week. Just come off of the main stage where I conducted the panel on gaming and neuroscience, which was great fun. And I'm delighted that um, Rick O'Donnell, um, founder and CEO of Skills Fund, has actually found the room that we're in today. So welcome, Rick. That was the first part of the challenge, which you succeeded in. I did. It's a big, uh, big venue here. It is indeed. Um, so first question, really, what Skills Fund, how did you get involved with it? Obviously, you founded it. So when did you set it up and what was the motivation behind that, really? Yeah, thank you. So uh, great to be here, Sophie. So, you know, skills fund motivation is partly based on the theory of follow the money. And what are the incentives in higher education that cause certain outcomes to happen? So uh, I used to run the higher ed system for the state of Colorado, overseeing all the colleges and universities. Uh, I sit on the U.S. government's body that regulates all college accrediting agencies. And our sense is there's a big problem, at least in the United States, which is if an accrediting agency says that's a good college and gives it stamp of approval, and then suddenly students can take out all sorts of loans and debt and taxpayer money flows to it, and it turns out it's a horrible university, bad outcomes, low graduation rate, nothing bad happens to the accreditor. And in fact, the accreditor is paid by the universities. So its incentive is never to unaccredit someone. It's insane. But nothing bad happens to this university, right? A university can take all these tuition dollars, cash paying, debt paid. And if students drop out, get a degree that's worthless, nothing bad happens to the university. The only person harmed is the student. So skills fund model is to change that. And so we actually uh, are a quality assurance entity that underwrites the quality of innovative higher ed um, programs, software coding boot camps, cybersecurity boot camps, data science. And we do a whole comprehensive review of what are their outcomes? Um, do their students graduate? And are really looking at what's the return on education? Should students spend their time and money at these schools? And if the answer is yes, then we will actually finance students to go to them. So we provide the money. Um, and what we've done here is if we get it wrong and say that's a good school, but it's not, and students borrow from us and default on their loans, we're going to lose money. So suddenly our incentive is to only really put our seal of approval on the good schools. But we also, for every loan we disperse, make the schools put a portion of it into an escrow account. And it sits there until the loans are paid off. And so if a school takes all of this tuition money financed by us and has poor outcomes, the school is actually going to lose money before we do. So suddenly the accreditor, the lender, and the school all have real skin in the games around student outcomes. So that's really interesting because I'm kind of fascinated by this financial aspects of higher education in the US. And um, I was talking to the guys from um, Mickelson Runway, and they were sort of talking about this model where, you know, students would start to pay back their their, um, loans as they started to work. And obviously we have that in the UK. So I was like, yeah, that's totally normal. But obviously here, I think it kicks in after even six months, you know, you have to start paying once you've graduated, whether you have a job or not, which just strikes me as quite terrifying, really. But 
I love the idea of skills uh, fund and what you're doing. How will it tackle those existing accreditation services and setups where they're getting paid by the universities? Is the idea that, you know, you put a stake in the ground, people see, okay, this is a different model, and then you can start to scale that? Well, so one, um, yeah, so we have students now coming to us saying, which school should I go to? I only want to go to school that you've accredited, in essence, approved, because they believe that we actually, since we're, since all, all of our money comes from whatever a student pays us, right, our interest in the students are aligned. So students are coming to us, and so that helps create an incentive for schools to want to go through our quality assurance, and that's partly how we create demand and scale. And then the other thing we did, when we asked schools, what are your outcomes? How many of your graduates get jobs? And they would say, look, 90% of our students have jobs in six months. We quickly discovered... What does that mean? Full-time job, part-time like in job? Like 7-Eleven or... Yeah, and, and every school calculated it differently, and it was complex formulas. And so we've actually banded together with a group of about 40 schools, launched an, a, an initiative called the Council on Integrity and Results Reporting to make a simple one-page sheet that says, tell us what happened to every student enrolled. So if 100 students enrolled, how many graduated on time? How many got full-time jobs in field for which they were trained, part-time jobs, out-of-field jobs, unemployed, at which time period and at what salary? And so we're bringing both transparency. And so again, students are coming to us saying, wow, I can actually compare schools to schools and I don't have to guess that this school's outcomes are actually going to be worth my time and money. And so we're trying to build an ecosystem of schools and lenders and students around high return on education and not unknown or, or low return on education. And what's quite interesting, I think, is that you're focusing on these perhaps alternatives. So um, I'm guessing some of those courses are within higher education institutions, but some of them are standalone kind of boot camps. And there's definitely a sense of it's a it can be a bit cowboyish out there. So there's so many. So how do you work out, you know, which are a true alternative to going to university? And I mean, I think the other thing that I've, I find interesting is Andrea Schleicher from the OECD. Um, I heard him say that, you know, our graduates are coming out uh, overqualified, but underskilled. So they, they have these kind of big signified degrees, but they, they don't have the skills to actually, when they start day one, to know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, so what I think is interesting is certainly in the, I think in the United States and even even schools we work with that are going into Europe and to Australia and Asia, um, the boot camp, if you will, is disrupting graduate education to start with. Right. So students are saying it's no longer worth two or three years and 50 to 200K to get a master's degree unless you're going to top 10 program. Right. I mean, if you can get into a top 10 program, it's more about networking and yeah. relationships. But outside of that, and that's a you know, that's five percent of the graduate students or less um they're like wow i could instead go to boot camp for four to six months twenty thousand dollars or less and i'm almost guaranteed a job at the end and so i think the the first disruption is happening at the graduate education level which for many universities are the cash cow yeah and so that's going to be really interesting i don't see yet um alternative uh, widespread alternatives to the undergraduate education i think that's harder to do i think it's harder to convince parents that you know what their son or daughter is doing is worth you know is better than a traditional degree i think it's coming but i think that's probably a decade-long process yeah yeah. interesting and do you see a great amount of the students that enroll with skills fund are they international yeah so um i would say that of the um the schools we serve, it depends on the school, but probably 10 to 15% of their students are international students. Um, 
but again, that part of the challenge is in the United States is visas. Since most of these alternative schools don't issue degrees, you can get a degree to come, you can get a visa to come study for a degree program. I think it's harder to get a visa if you're not already here. Um, if you're graduating from school, you can kind of extend your visa. So there's a, these don't fit the normal, you know, part of the challenge with, with changing higher ed is it's like employers. So we have an employee, we have a school that had to get accredited because employers will only reimburse students for tuition at accredited institutions, but the institution didn't want to be accredited. But it's just employers have glommed on the degree ecosystem, as have the visa systems. And so breaking the, the infrastructure, de- the infrastructure is really hard. Yeah. And that's part of it. It's following the money, right? Employer, re-incent- employer incentives and other things are what we're trying to break into by being a financing arm and not just a quality assurance arm. And so you mentioned you used to work at the state of Colorado. Correct. Do you, in terms of your accreditation side of things, do you work with government to sort of help put a stamp of approval? Because I think, I mean, on the panel I was just talking on, I think that's half the problem is you've just got such a myriad of services and tools out there. How do you kind of have that kite mark of quality? And Yeah, it's we do. We spend a lot of time trying to educate um, state, state officials and federal officials. And part of the challenge is, you know, traditionally higher ed's product has been degrees, mm-hmm. right? So if you were, so we had an agency that worked for me and was, it was to stop diploma mills. So it was like, do you teach courses and teach the subjects you're teaching? And can students graduate and get a certificate or degree? That was the question asked. It wasn't actually asked how many get jobs. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're seeing in higher ed is a change from the selling of degrees to the selling of outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. how you measure that is hard. I don't know. I don't, I actually don't believe it's harder. I actually think it's easier because you, do you get a job or not for what you were trained for? And, and even if you're, it's an undergraduate kind of liberal arts education, I still think you can say how many of your students had jobs that weren't part-time wage, you know, uh, service jobs that you didn't need to go to get a three or four year undergraduate degree for. Yeah. You can measure that. Um, even if it's not in a specific vocational field. It reminds me of um, in the UK, we have a coding boot camp. I think it's like 12 weeks. And when they're, I mean, part of how they sell it is, yeah, you will get a job at the end. And when and when their kind of cohort members get a job, there's a huge gong in their office. Mm-hmm. And they just, <laughs> you can't really re- imagine that on sort of a, a university no, campus. Not at all. And, and, and part of the reason like the, the boot camps I think are winning is if you think of a 12 or six month program that usually has a couple of cohorts, a, a boot camp school might gra- have five to 10 graduating classes a year. And that's five to 10 times when they're getting feedback from employers of is your curriculum relevant? Are the skills your graduates have up to speed? And so their iterative cycle time and feedback loop to improve their curriculum is leaps and bounds. I mean, tra- changing the curriculum at a traditional university, that's a multi-year project. Uh, and they're not always even listening to employers or listening to the disciplines. Uh, and so that just the mindset and the culture is so different that, you know, the, the schools that are really focused on outcomes um, have an ability to always, not always, but are currently leapfrogging ahead of traditional institutions that even if they want to try, I mean, I know a lot of traditional institutions that really try hard to give their graduates, but they just can't meet the cycle times mm-hmm. of uh, institution that's going to graduate 10 classes a year. I think what we'll see is universities will become, you know, there'll be more modular learning as they try and realize they need to compete on that level. So this whole idea of sort of unpackaging degrees or, yeah, I think that's coming. Yeah, I, I think it is. I think one of the questions though is like, what's the 
what's the validation, right? If, like, if you believe a degree from a certain university confers something, if the university only offers a portion of that, um, are, are universities going to have to validate what they're packaging together? Uh, or is the brand dilution, like are people going to stand behind, whether it's University of Colorado degree or uh, a Harvard degree, at some level, if the vast majority of the education wasn't provided by that institution, um, what, what is, are they just a, a in essence, an, a new form of accreditation mm-hmm. rather than an actual institution delivering education? That's very interesting. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case, like this idea of brand and, you know, some of the big university brands are up there probably with some of the big kind of uh, food and beverage brands in terms of recognition and, you know, people's association with them. So when you turned up, you mentioned that you'd had back-to-back meetings since 8.30 this morning. So I wondered from those meetings already, if you had a sense of like what discussion topics are happening around ASU GSV this year or which kind of focal points people are thinking about um, in 2017? Yeah, it, it's still early, but I think I noticed a change last year at this summit, and I think it's continuing so far this year, which is um, much more focus on who's driving scalable results that are um, self-funding, right? So whether you're a nonprofit uh, or a for-profit kind of innovative education provider, um, it's no longer who's got the best technology or the best magic bullets uh, or kind of the sexiness of ed tech. I mm-hmm. think that's all worn off. Yeah. Uh, and I think people are like, you know, and it's great that you can show um, tremendous education gains or learning gains or outcome gains or whatever you're measuring with 50 students, 200 students. But can you scale it to a thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand um, at a at a price that like who's going to pay it, right? Because at some point the venture money runs out, oh, or the grant money runs out. I'm so sick of seeing articles on top funded ed tech companies. I, I just think that's like relatively interesting. I'm really keen to start seeing like which are actually either generating significant revenues or you know generating significant impact. But like you say, it's self funded and. Perhaps it's a bit rough around the edges, but that's sort of taking off. I think that's far more interesting. Yeah, I would agree. And, I, and so I just, both both the entrepreneurs I'm chatting with and the investors, I mean, that's that's much more on people's mind than maybe it was a couple of years ago. And, and I think that's just maybe endemic, at least in the US, of the uh, technology startup. I mean, even non-ed tech startups, you, you read the press, like the Silicon Valley VC firms are much more focused on who's getting a cash flow you know, positive and, yeah. and, and, you know, then there's just sort of cycles in investment. And I think you're in a much more show us the true results cycle partial portion of the cycle right it's now. Interesting. It'd be interesting to see by the end of like Wednesday, whether I've heard that a few times. So I'll, I'll get back to you on that one. Final question. What resources, people or books do you go back to in terms of your thinking around what you're trying to do with skills fund or perhaps in terms of setting that up and the challenges? Are there any things that have inspired you and sort of are integral to how you think about what you do in this space? It's a really good question. I think so I'm a bit of a maverick, and my challenge, most of the books about higher ed are either how how great the universities are and we just need to improve upon them, or how broken they are and they need to be destroyed. And I, 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 think, I don't think either one of them quite get it, right? So I go back to books for inspirations of what not to do, right? Yeah. Um, it, so that's a really good question. I mean, most of my research my inspirations are, are you know, just startup entrepreneur things mm-hmm. uh, and less higher ed as a whole. Yeah, um, that's a really good question. So, any so the particular founders that have inspired you, or teammates, or yeah, I mean, you know, I my heroes are. I mean, I've got, I've got like they're Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, Steve Jobs, um, 
uh, Warren Buffett, uh, you know, people who created value in different ways uh, and and understood that, like, I mean, Steve Jobs in my mind, right? He design and technology, right? We're trying to bring finance and education, like quality assurance together in a new way. Uh, I think the most innovative companies usually get built upon and if you think like the Clay Christian disruptive innovation, I mean, at some level, that's what SkillsFund is doing. We're playing on the margin. I mean, most universities don't. Boot camps are a minor thing that doesn't matter. It's like an irritating fly there. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, but, but I look at it and think, you know, they're eating your cash cow, which is called graduate education. They're coming for the main meal. And that's exciting. Even if today you think, what are these 12-week programs? We do five, four, six, 10-year degrees and PhDs. And so for me, it's inspiration of people who've gone around other industries and found ways to change them and change them from yeah. the you know from just picking one part of the value chain and then using that to grow and scale. Um, I think um, you know, and I and, and it's uh, so that's kind of where I turn to for inspiration. And if people want to connect with you and follow up when they listen to this, um, how, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, just go to our website skills.fund, yeah. uh, and uh, just you can email us from there. All our contact information is from there, and just reach out from us there. We'd love to hear you, and we. We always love to hear from schools and other finance partners and um, worldwide. We're doing a lot of cool stuff and love to make this grow bigger. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Rick. Sophie, thank you. So I'm here with Pierre Dubut, co-founder of Open Classrooms from France. So welcome, Pierre. Thank you. So um, we just had a bit of a chat and um, uh, basically you're here, you've been on panels, having lots of meetings, managed to acclimatize a bit via Florida from France. Can you tell all of our listeners what you're looking to achieve with Open Classrooms? So Open Classrooms is a project that started with a co-founder called Mathieu. Uh, we started Open Classrooms three years and a half ago. Uh, our mission is uh, very simple. It's to make education accessible. And um, three years and a half ago, we started Open Classrooms. But um, it's a long story, actually, because we started publishing and creating, publishing online free courses uh, back in 1999. So we were sixth graders and we started to build the courses which we had um, when we were at school. Uh, so we've been doing so for over 10 years as a hobby. And uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, we started and created uh, the startup company. We are based in Paris, France. Um, it's a 70-person team now. And what we do is that we improve our learners' employability. So we have students, we have employees, and we have job seekers taking online courses, basically MOOCs, but also fully online degrees. So a unique point at Open Classrooms is that we are a fully endorsed, accredited uh, higher education institution. So we mm-hmm. have degree awarding powers mm. and we can deliver bachelor's degrees and master's degrees in a fully online uh, fashion. That's really interesting. So I was speaking to a uh, lawyer yesterday and he was explaining to me the complexity of the term university. So, you know, you can't, uh, which is why Trump University got in trouble, because Mm -hmm. you can't call yourself a university unless you can award that particular degree. But um, do you suffer from the same kind of regulation strangleholds or how do you go about accrediting and, you know, being accredited with that kind of legalese in the background? (laughs) It's an excellent question. 
questions are regulation, compliance, and accreditation are tough issues for us. So we are, since we are based in, in France, uh, we are endorsed by the French state. Um, so we cannot call ourselves university in France because universities are only public in France. Mm -hmm. You cannot uh, create a private university. It doesn't, doesn't exist. Um, so we are a so-called school, so mm -hmm. a higher education institution, um, but we can ask for degree awarding power. So that is what we have right now. Um, the main question is for us right now is that we have uh, 3 million students uh, every month on our platform in 128 countries. So it's in English and French and Spanish. So um, we have uh, students basically in, in almost uh, everywhere in the world um, and regulation in, in every country is, is different. Um, and we have two main issues when it comes to regulation. One is the accreditation. Mm -hmm. So usually accreditation is very local. So you are accredited for your degrees only in one country, but also job markets. As our goal is to improve employabilities um, of our learners, uh, we want to match uh, the skills and the, and the jobs that are in high demand, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and job markets are usually very, very local. So right now on the accreditation side, since we are uh, France is in Europe, um, there are equivalences. They remind uh, us. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So, <laughs> Sorry so about that. <laughs> so subject. <laughs> and apparently, our new president will will make France stay in Europe. That's a good thing. Yeah. So um, we have uh, equivalences across sixty countries. Mm -hmm. um, so, we, for instance, if you get a bachelor's degree on open classrooms, uh, you can apply for a standard on-campus uh, university program in, let's say, Belgium or, or in Spain for a master's degree, and mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be recognized. No worries about that. But if you go to Brazil, let's mm -hmm. say, um, there's no equivalences. So it's, it's a new issue, I think, because so far education was only local. So local students going to local universities and, and finding local jobs. Uh, so that was pretty normal that accreditation was only local. But right now, for instance, we have a student from Burma living in Japan enrolled in an English curriculum leading to a French degree. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what's fascinating about the, the world we live in now, I think. I mean, did you see LinkedIn CEO's uh, panel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I yesterday. Mean, I, mm. I, uh, I felt that the tone of the panel was very self-congratulatory because they're all friends, it's so it's mm. a lot of uh, back-patting. But what was interesting was, um, you know, the idea about localising skills. So, um, you know, being able to sort of geolocate okay, there's a, a dip in this kind of skills development for this role, which mm -hmm. we know is needed in this town. So then trying to match both of them and having that faster iteration of which skills are needed and which courses are supplied to help try mm -hmm. and match that gap. So I don't know, what did you take from the uh, the panel? Did you think any, any, any parts of it were interesting? Yes, I, I think LinkedIn is a very interesting platform, as you, as you said, um, they have a huge amount of data on uh, users' profiles, on their careers, uh, on their professional experiences, and, and, and also on the skills they have. Uh, even though uh, skills are only decorative, so you, you cannot really check what people say on their LinkedIn profile, can you? Mm -hmm. um, so maybe yeah. it's right, maybe it's wrong. So um, I, I think <coughs> the main idea... 
and then LinkedIn has to match and close the digital skills gap, for instance, the skills gap in general. I think it's great. Um, so far, I don't see them doing um, it in an exemplary way because um, I think they are sitting on a gold mine mm-hmm. basically right now. So I interviewed the CEO of FutureLearn, Simon Nelson, when I was at South by Southwest. And, uh, you know, I think the the uh, most popular course on their platform is the English language mm-hmm. one from the British Council. I just wondered what, what you found was the most popular content on your platform. Um, mostly around digital skills. Um, so it could be web development, could be data science, could be entrepreneurship. Um, so digital skills, I think, are, are in a really high demand on every single online learning platform uh, right now. And we, we find that to be true on open classrooms as well. And getting back to your question around um, closing the skills gap, interestingly, um, we started to uh, create a new product uh, to try to close that skills gap, um, trying to bring employers' needs and, and uh, also job seekers and people in, in needs to find a, j- a good job. Uh, all together. So right now, you have employers, for instance, uh, wanting to f- hire like thousands of developers, mm-hmm. um, and we uh, we get to them and we tailor a curriculum to their needs, leading to a bachelor's or master's degree. Then we're gonna find students, find profiles, students or job seekers or anybody interested in that um, curriculum. And we're going to train them, but the employer will hire the student from day one. Mm-hmm. It's going to be like an apprenticeship, okay. so it's an online yeah. apprenticeship. So you'll become, as a student, you'll become an employee mm-hmm. with a work contract. You'll be paid from day one. The company will pay the tuition fees for you. So training for free, you're getting paid. Um, you're going to uh, be trained on the job and get an academic degree at the end, a bachelor's or a master's degree, depending on the curriculum. So that kind of mix between academic education, traditional education, but also vocational training and training them on the job, I think this is really interesting to close the skills gap Mm -hmm. um, and to make sure that curriculum will be fully aligned with companies' needs Mm-hmm. Um, so we are trying to roll out the, the first uh, bit ideas on that. And is that uh, sort of in response to any government initiatives? So in the UK, I mean, we've got something similar around the apprenticeship uh, levy. And I know that you can now do uh, a whole wealth of different things. So including up to, you know, a law degree mm-hmm. um, through that method. I just wondered if it's something you've taken on upon yourself or if the government have also backed something like that. Both um, really depends on the country. Um, so, for instance, in the UK or I know in France, in Germany as well, um, governments are willing to cover the tuition fees uh, when you when you build apprenticeship programs. Um, so it's uh, costless for um, companies because uh, usually, for instance, governments or public employment agencies will pay for the training Mm -hmm. but in other countries they don't have such uh, systems so companies have to pay for the tuition fees or or individuals directly so it really depends on every again it's back to you know local regulation and what are the top three countries where your learners are based 
Um, right now, it's uh, mainly in Europe, in Africa, in North America. So um, I'd say France, because originally we are based, uh, based in France. Um, we have a, a very strong growth from Africa right now. Um, and especially Morocco, for instance, um, it's been growing like crazy in the last few years. And right now we have 25% of all user base in Africa alone. So what do you think sparked that? And is it around the digital skills again that you're seeing that? I think there's a huge lack of infrastructure um, in Africa and they have to catch up with the demographics there. So more people are, are, are willing to get a college degree. Mm-hmm. Um, there are more and more people uh, by far compared to Europe or to North America. And there are only a few universities and even fewer great universities or, or schools. Um, so imagine that in emerging countries like, let's say, India, you have to build two universities of 25,000 students every week just to catch up with the demographics. Mm, the demand, and you know, especially because it's a, a young country, is, mm-hmm. is massive. My other question was, yeah, obviously um, I was here uh, this week and watched Macron and uh, his speech, his acceptance speech. So um, I just wondered, and you may or may not have an opinion on this, but for those people around the world that aren't so immersed in the sort of French politics, I don't know if you knew his educational policies or digital policies that, um, you know, may be of interest to the people listening in as well. Yeah, I, um, I think um, he is really willing to invest a lot um, on training young people and job seekers right now. Mm-hmm. So he said it's going to invest 15 billion euros in, in vocational training for wow. young and job seekers. So let's see if that really going to happen, right? But um, the interest is there. So it has uh, quite a good analysis on on the skills gap and saying that, you know, jobs will change, skills will change. So we need to retrain, reskill, upskill all the workforce and we, we need to invest a lot in that. So that is a good thing, um, definitely. Um, I think is quite aware of the um, like the main digital transformation of our industry of our companies. Uh, again, willing to invest a lot in that. Um, great, great things. Like I'm still like waiting to see if that's gonna be yep. uh, put in in motion uh, in the next. A couple of months, but it's uh, at least it's enthusiastic um, to to see that program compared to Marine Le Pen's program. Uh, so, as an entrepreneur, um, willing to make education more accessible and to be um, connected with the world, mm-hmm. uh, I think we now have a great opportunity with one of the youngest uh, president mm-hmm. in, um, in in history. So. We'll see. We'll yeah, see. because um, France is always very visible with the um, France tech sort mm-hmm. of, uh, is it a hen or a chicken? It's a uh, ch- ch- chicken. Uh, yeah. yeah, a poulet. Yeah, a poulet, a cock. <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I think whereas, um, you know, there were some questions around CES this year and the UK didn't do something equivalent. And I mm-hmm. think, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the French have been very uh, visible, certainly on the tech side of things. There's a brand out there. 
Um, what's quite interesting is you are in common company with people like Joe and Matthew at Firefly, who are young founders. I don't know if you're familiar with Firefly. It's like um, no, I'm not. Okay, so it's like a, um, I suppose similar to Show My Homework or something like that, like a um, a homework or school uh, platform where parents students teachers can all interact and share content and uh you know monitor learning i suppose um but again they they were um i think in their maybe 16 17 18 Mm -hmm. uh when they developed their platform and um it sort of grew out of something like a passion hobby and then also um george bajess here with uh gojimo who i think uh, was the the most downloaded GCSE app revision app, mm-hmm. and he was uh, very young when he launched that. So, um, I just wondered what that experience was like of taking something which sort of developed organically and that growing into mm-hmm. a business, and now you employ is it forty people? Uh, <laughs> even, even seventeen now. Oh, 70, um, okay. Plus um, network of mentors, like um, individual teachers. Uh, of uh, 200 people right now so it's getting larger and larger (laughs) every single week but yeah um, I can relate to that uh, totally to the stories since I I started when I was 11 Uh, so I I learned to code uh, when I was around 10 and uh, I was willing to uh, you know practice my development skills and create a website and then I started to work with my team and my partner um, to create this website and, and improve this website where we uh, we were publishing uh, online courses on web development at first. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been doing so for, for over 10 years, parallel to our studies, uh, creating more courses, creating, developing more features, setting up like forums, and then collaborative ways of studying and creating new courses. Um, it was really a learning community with many, many members. And it, it became more and more famous in a way uh, until I, I got to uh, study engineering. Um, and that was really funny because uh, some of my courses I had at my engineering school were on programming, for instance. And most of my co workers and colleagues um they were actually studying on my website and yeah. teachers didn't know about it <laughs> so that was that was a very cool and, uh, and were era. you generating any revenue from that because uh, <laughs> that's even more funny if you <laughs> <laughs> not not much at, at that time yeah. um we were just like struggling to pay like hosting fees for instance when we were around 16 year old um, we we had hosting fees of two or three thousand euros a month. Um, that is big when you're a student, <laughs> um, and I don't come like from a you know uh, um, rich family or anything. So, um, so you had uh, enough to kind of pay it just about every. Time. Yeah, it was kind of short. We started to add up, uh, ads on the website. Uh, sometimes we. Uh, as for donation directly to the community uh, twice or three times I think and it worked pretty well so um, we managed to uh, stay afloat for several years like that and at some point when we realized when we noticed that the MOOC wave back in 2011 or 2012 uh, we thought okay this is what we're doing for more than 10 years Mm -hmm. Uh, we have built 
strong community. We have hundreds, thousands of uh, students. Uh, we have great courses. We have uh, everything. We have a strong experience, even though we are still pretty young. Um, so we decided to really go, go for uh, it. yeah, go for it and go full time and create the venture, raise some money, hire our first uh, employees, create a business model, and try to uh, make the ambition even greater and really go uh, full force on making education more accessible. And so, in terms of people listening in, if they're individuals, they can access it, but also it's for institutions. So for schools and higher ed or more higher ed and vocational? Yes, and, and companies, so uh, students directly. Um, so really large, we have people from 15 to uh, 60 plus. Um, every course is for free. Uh, so you can study for free. Um, it's like a MOOC, uh, basically with videos, exercises, uh, peer assessment forums, Certifications, um, you have to pay for certifications. You can also enroll in um, in uh, degree programs uh, in which you'll have access to an individual mentor via video conference. So a practitioner um, coaching you, helping you, giving you best practices every single week. Um, degree programs last from 6 to 12 months usually so it's very flexible you can start whenever you want uh, you can do it in 9 months in 15 months it's uh, really up to you and at the end you get a bachelor's degree or a master's degree uh, so those are for end users individuals and then we work also with schools universities and companies to um, either tra- train their, st- uh, their employees their workforce uh, to hire one of our grad- some of our graduates um, and also to help uh, schools and, and colleges to digitalize some of our, of their curriculum and use some of our courses um, to create blended uh, experiences. And how do you relax? <laughs> uh, well, not so often. <laughs> no, um Seriously, I, um, I go pretty often in the mountains. I'm yeah. a mountain guy. I go mountaining, climbing, skiing, hiking. You're not one of those French, like, that amazing climbers that don't use uh, harnesses or anything. It's always the French. They're, like, hanging upside down and True. rock climbing and really good at it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think they are, like, amazing climbers yeah. in France. So right now we are in Salt Lake City. I'm going to head uh, tomorrow to Yellowstone National oh, Park. Nice. Uh, that going to be amazing i'm so excited so <laughs> that's a good prize at the end of the it event. is it is um and if people are listening in and they'd like to find out more how do they go about doing that uh so they can visit openclassrooms.com definitely and they can also email me if they want uh, more information so i have a twitter uh, handle uh, called p underscore debuck d-u-b-u-c or my email address is pierre p-i-e-r-r at openclassrooms.com Great, alright, thank you Pierre Thank you I'm delighted that I'm here with Tom Andriola who is the CIO and Vice President at the University of California Office of the President and also the second top 100 social CIO on the show so I interviewed recently the CIO of the FCC Dr. David Bray. In fact, maybe that's a good chance to jump straight in, really with the question, why is being a social CIO a thing? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, our, our world is very, is, is become very networked. Yeah. And, and so, 
you know, I think the thing that CIO, you know, CIO, you're, you know, you're a leader, you're a spokesperson. And the question is, is how do you reach the broad audiences that you're trying to reach with, with the key messages? And uh, where lots of people use social media for different things. For me, it's more about a messaging platform to reach our constituencies, uh, whether they be inside of our university, but also across uh, our industry. And so we use it as a way to tell great stories, uh, to highlight wonderful things that are happening within the university, uh, the positive impacts that the university is having. So sometimes you'll see some of the things uh, I do in social media are not even about technology per se. Mm-hmm. It's about some you know fantastic student story that we want to highlight or something that's happening at the university. What brings you to ASU GSV? Well, you know, I I came for just a day last year. What I saw when I was here made me very intrigued to come back and and really dedicate a few days. For me, higher ed is a little bit of a new industry. I spent a majority of my career in healthcare, and the University of California has a lot of healthcare in it. And so when they were looking for a new CIO, they wanted someone who had more of a business acumen, someone who could really help the university think about technology and its impact on the mission of the university. And this particular conference was the the intermingling that I usually uh, have tried to go to that shows new ideas, uh, forward thinkers, and people willing to invest money into those new ideas that might somehow change or transform the industry. So I'll be spending the next three days here really learning having lots of conversations and really immersing myself in, in, in the ed tech space. And in a way, I mean, I um, in 2009, I launched the Mobile Healthcare Industry Summit. And so I spent a bit of time looking at digital healthcare. And I came over to Washington when they had the digital healthcare event with uh, Bill Gates speaking and the M Health Alliance. And there, there are quite some interesting similarities between what EdTech's trying to do and, what, and digital healthcare. And I think about, you know, the two cultures colliding. So one's quite traditional, perhaps a bit slower, with the tech scene perhaps being a bit more sort of forward looking. You know, you've got the, the issues of data privacy and all, all of those sort of salient discussions that I think there is some similarity across both what's happening with digital healthcare and what's happening with education technology as well. Yeah, I I think there's lots. And I actually just did an article on this recently in terms of my long history in healthcare and some of the analogs I see happening in education. Uh, Certainly, you you mentioned one, privacy, right? You know, just in terms of as we generate more data, there's so many questions about appropriate uses of the data and whether the data is inside the context of our, I'll just call it the institution or other data that floats around, especially around, you know, the millennials and the Gen Zs who live in, in this world of social media and are generating tons of data around what's going on with their lives. And is that appropriate to use in the context of trying to help them in their educational experience at a university campus? Uh, the other thing is that I've watched healthcare go through that I think education is heading towards is education is going to come to understand that it is actually a data-driven industry. Uh, And it it comes in waves in terms of uh, we find the data uh, intrusive uh, because we want to focus on the mission of of, teaching and learning or research in the case of faculty. But then as people start to look at the data and gain insights to them, they learn to figure out how they can use it to improve upon what they do. Mm -hmm. Because I know that in in my working with the the faculty, uh, they're perfectionists. They they really care about what they do. They want to be the best at what they do, whether it's in, in their lab or in the classroom. And at some point, I think they'll start to look at the data in terms of how is this going to help me be the best that I can be in whatever, you know, whatever form I'm, I'm trying to do it in. 
It's very interesting. So the idea of a electrode sort of leaning on their lesson plans or resources that they've rolled out for the last 10 years isn't really going to happen anymore. Because, you know, if you've got a way to check where students really lock on to an idea or where they drop off, and you've got the ability to change and iterate that, then, you know, the pressure is going to be on doing that, not kind of uh, having this sort of static lesson plan. Yeah, I mean, it's a much more dynamic world. Just overall, it's a more dynamic world. I mean, if you have children today and you compare how you grew up in a much more linear fashion in the way that you're, you're trying to navigate and help your children. And so I think that that permeates so many different parts of our lives. And so, you know, I think one of the things that, you know, that uh, people in the classroom struggle with now is how to embrace the dynamic nature of things and, you know, where there's high interest level, how to go with it versus staying with this very, very structured plan. One of the things in being in technology is I get to see you know, all the advances around just computing, the ability to actually, you know, grab all this data, aggregate it, analyze it, and actually make these real-time recommendations, things that other industries are doing that I think will find their way into education, you know, and the time frame and in the form that are appropriate. Because it is an industry that is, you know, it has a lot of history and institutional knowledge that comes with it. And that's not a bad thing. It's just something that has to be incorporated into how change happens. <laughs> yes, yeah, so a really interesting tweet earlier, which is like, you know, edtech companies, you think your, really, your product's really great. Don't think you won't have to, you know, revise it quite seriously for higher education to consider taking it on. Yeah. And, you know, you can't just kind of crowbar it in there. So one question, um, someone with your job title, I'm sure, is constantly, you know, contacted by tech companies saying like, look at our new thing. And, you know, um, so that must present its own challenges. And if you had a message to those people listening in that, you know, are from that side of the spectrum, so tech companies and especially those working with higher education, what would your message to them be? Yeah, um, create success at a small scale. And then work upstream. You know, I mean, this industry is is not about big, big contracts. I mean, they happen, but they're rare. Much more, especially in the ed tech space, I've learned things working even at individual faculty level that expand then to you know a dozen faculty that then a department uh, adopts and then you know an entire campus stops adopts. That's what works in higher ed. I mean, it really is. There's a peer-to-peer selling that happens in this particular industry that you have to embrace. Uh, healthcare has it too, which is where I first learned it. And as I come over here and working with faculty, uh, you know. I joke a lot of times, like faculty don't want to hear from me, someone on administration about a great tool. They want to hear from one of their peers. And so there's a lot of peer-to-peer selling. And I I see my role as being much more of a facilitator of good things that are happening and how do we spread them more quickly rather than being the one introducing the new idea. And do you participate in any kind of Twitter chats around these kind of issues? Because I know in the UK, we have things like LTHE chat, like learning technology for higher education chat and things like that and I don't know if it's also an area where people kind of share those tools that they they kind of really get into yeah I I don't personally but we have you know we being 10 research universities right we have a very very broad community of people and we probably have somewhere between five and 500 and 750 people who are in the ed tech space alone. And those people are involved in lots of, you know, national committees, you know, twi- Twitter conversations, you know, and we actually try to generate those in terms of being very, very kind of vocal and out there 
And I like to see us leading conversations rather than following conversations. I think that's really interesting as well that you mentioned it, it is that, you know, start small scale, grow it organically, because I think a lot of people listening in, I think the appeal certainly with higher education is that you can get this big institutional win. Um, and I know, you know, you've got the big managed services providers and perhaps if they're looking at ed tech, it doesn't make sense for them if they're looking at smaller scale or so, it's certainly K-12 if it's not, you know, a centralized system. So it's, it's quite you know I think it's quite refreshing to hear that actually it's the same it works by trust in an educator and they pass on sort of word of mouth marketing and that's the way it kind of works best yeah absolutely I think the thing I focus on is not trying to change that but figuring out how to accelerate it right if we can get from you know first adoption to 50 faculty using it uh, and if I could cut that time in half that is, you know, the essence of innovation, of in ex- the, the acceleration that I'm looking to try to create from what my office does. Interesting. And so if people are listening in and they'd like to connect with you, it's Andreola underscore UC, is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah in terms of my, my, my Twitter handle. Okay, yes. great. And just finally, so are there any resources, people or books that have had an impact on you? So how you think or what you go back to? Yeah, I'm not, you know, in terms of books, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a big reader today in terms of, you know, books. I mean, I read a lot of articles, but I, you know, I find, and that's why spending three days here is going to be so much fun. I find that the individual conversations or listening to thought leaders who push my thinking, again, I'm three years into working in higher education. I'm still learning a lot, right? Um, I really enjoy when I go to our campuses and being able to sit down and have lunch with faculty. I even have developed some working collaborations with them where my knowledge of technology and their knowledge of a particular domain where the fusion of that is pushing us into a new space. So I've got some really, really great, um, let's call it relationships with institutes on, on our campuses that allow me to be influenced by them while me bringing something to the table. That's good. That's the, that's the kind of uh, sort of symbiotic relationship you want, really. Yeah, and, you know, and it's, it's sometimes it's hard for people on the administrative side to have that relationship with faculty. Um, I identified pretty quickly that it was going to be important to build trusted bonds with some key faculty members, some of the thought leaders who are doing interesting things with technology. And so, you know, I found ways to connect with them and, and, and to really have common interests and to propose things with them that have, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a yeah. great learning experience for me. And, and it, it continues to help me get my name out there in this industry. Okay, fantastic. Well, Tom, thank you for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Well, that brings us to the end of this second episode from the 10-part ASU GSB Summit series. Don't forget to sign up to our newsletter to find out about upcoming meetup drinks, cool jobs currently circulating, and other announcements. I do hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Send us your feedback on Twitter to either at Podcast EdTech or at ASU GSB Summit and come back next time for our following episode on efficacy and impact.